Hi, everybody. This is Kara Fitzgerald. New Frontiers in Functional Medicine is here every month, bringing you the best minds in functional medicine. And we would not be able to do this over the years without the generous contributions from our sponsors, Metagenics, Integrative Therapeutics, and Biotics Research. The mission of Metagenics is to lead the movement in making personalized nutritional intervention the standard of care in the treatment and prevention of disease and the promotion of optimal health. For over 30 years, Metagenics has been dedicated to scientific discovery, innovative products, unparalleled quality, education, and practitioner partnerships to support lifestyle functional nutrition. For more information, visit Metagenics at metagenics.com. Biotics Research. For four, over 40 years, the foundations of biotics research has been innovation and quality. Their goals remain unchanged. Innovative ideas, carefully researched concepts, and product development with advanced analytical and manufacturing techniques. Biotics nutritional products are of superior quality and effectiveness and available exclusively to healthcare professionals. Visit them at bioticsresearch.com. Integrative Therapeutics is focused on inspiring a better lifestyle through better health. By providing meticulously formulated nutritional supplements and valuable resources, Integrative Therapeutics promises to enrich your patients and embolden your practice. Welcome to your Integrative Therapeutics. Find them at integrativepro.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, where we are interviewing the best minds in functional medicine. And today is no exception. I am so, 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 so excited to be talking to a really brilliant, down-to-earth pediatrician. And, you know, I was thinking, her name is, um, as I jump into my waxing and philosophically here, her name is Dr. Elisa Song. You're probably familiar with her um, healthykidshappykids.com site. And if you haven't, get over there because it's an awesome re resource for us as physicians. Um, and it's also great for uh, parents. Anyway, I, was, I, I don't think I've had a lot of pediatricians on the show. And um, as I was pondering that before we started recording, I think I've had Dr. Sid Baker. Um, and, and that's pretty much it. So I am going to be pinging um, Elisa with as much uh, as I possibly can for everybody because it's a huge source of questions for us, you know, how to address kids using functional medicine. So I'm going to give you her background and then we're going we're gonna to dive in. We're focusing primarily on PANS Pandas today, but um, she's just going to be giving us a lot of useful things to do in practice. Uh, so Dr. Song is a holistic pediatrician, she's a functional medicine expert, and she's a mama. Uh, she has, she's been in integrative um, pediatric medicine for quite a while. She's over in the San Francisco area. Uh, her clinic's called Whole Family Wellness. She's worked with thousands of kids uh, to get to their root cause of their health concerns. You know, and again, we were dialoguing that, you know, now's the time to get in there and do preventive medicine with, you know, uh, the potential for autoimmunity or uh, working on, on early on on GI disturbances and so so on and so forth so obviously it's a hugely important uh, area for functional medicine uh, Elisa has lectured all over the world um, she's got a 
uh, focus in pans and pandas, and we're going to be putting a lot of attention to that today. I've already mentioned it. She's got a great website, Healthy Kids, Happy Kids. Um, and what else? She's done, she's, she's a, you're IFM, are you IFM CP? You've been with, you've been doing IFM trainings forever. Yeah, well, Kara, I, mean, <laughs> I, I have, I mean, you know, I, I took, I, we were talking offline beforehand and, you know, it is, this is really the time that we need to dive into pediatric functional medicine and, and integrative yeah. pediatric work because our kids are just getting sicker and sicker, right? Yeah. And so we don't have the tools in conventional pediatric residency training to address all of the chronic illnesses that are facing our kids. And I took the AFMCP course with way been, back way back in like 2003 2004 and back then I was one of the few pediatricians who had gone through the AFMCP and so I really learned over the past 15 years I had to do it on my own right kind of figuring out dosages and testing yes. and interpretation and what's safe to use what's not safe to use and so you know I, I have all of this experience and it's I love to share because I am you know, bottom line, a clinician, right? Yes. I mean, I see patients four and a half days a week in my office and they come from unfortunately all over the world because there are not enough pediatric functional medicine trained physicians and practitioners in the world. Well, I mean, and especially as you and I were talking about doing, you know, general functional pediatrics, you know, we, of course, Liz Mumper and um, Nancy O'Hara, Sid, you know, Dr. Baker, I mean, you, the, they're brilliant. I, th I, I guess what, I, what what probably happens is that you know you you hone your expertise and then you end up specializing like Nancy and Liz and yeah and, and they are I mean they are my idols right yeah. when I was first yeah. starting out in my in this question. private practice all of us I started my practice in 2005 and back then we were called Dan doctors right defeat right. autism right. now <laughs> right. and uh, and so. Um, you know, they, they were my original teachers and mentors and they're amazing. Yes. But what, what is uh, challenging now is their kids are facing so many more chronic illnesses than autism. And, you know, we have this, this um, biomedical approach to autism where parents and practitioners who are really wanting to dive into that get a ton of support. But what about the kids who are showing up early on with eczema and asthma, you know, in mm -hmm. their infancy and or kids who have reflux or chronic constipation, kids who are showing signs, early signs of autoimmunity or neuropsychiatric problems. So we need to be able to apply functional medicine to these children so that they don't go on to develop long-term chronic immune endocrine neuropsychiatric problems like we're seeing because you know the statistics right now as we sit here today in 2019 we're looking at at least one in two kids if not more are diagnosed with some sort of a chronic condition and the latest numbers that i i saw was that really if we're heading along this trajectory that we are going to be facing maybe eight in ten kids with chronic illness of some sort you know, within the next decade. I mean, that's, that's extraordinary. It, yeah, it's unacceptable. I mean, we should, yeah. this is not what we should be having or hoping for our kids, right? They should be thriving. You know, the other thing I want, I, I you know, I was thinking of, you know, when you just put, gave those statistics is, um, and then we'll jump into pans and pandas, but um, 
is um, eosinophilic esophagitis or just eosinophilic gastroenteropathies in general. I, so the new, the atopic march has evolved from, um, it is eczema and then I think uh, hay fever, rhinitis, and then asthma. And now EOE is in there with onset at like two years. Absolutely. I mean, that's insane. It is insane. It's insane that we are seeing not just more kids with this sort of atopic allergic phenomena, but the severity is increasing with the number of kids with anaphylactic food allergies and the number of kids that I'm seeing with EOE or EJ. I I didn't see EOE in residency. And I went to UCSF, which, you know, is is a, you know, quaternary care center. We see the sickest of the sick, but EOE was not really a phenomenon that was this. I, I mean, know. autism wasn't either. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. you know, when I think back to when I graduated from residency in 2000, that's, yes. that's less than, I guess, I, you know, I'm dating myself. That's almost 20 years ago. <laughs> but I, I was told back then if I saw a handful of children with autism in my career, that it would be a lot. Um, I ended up my three-year residency seeing one child with autism you know, start my practice up five years later and just exploded, right? Mm. And so we're in this stage now where we can't ignore this anymore. And, you know, you're talking about this atopic march and this allergic march. You know, one of the studies that I want every single practitioner to read is it was released last spring, spring of 2018. And there was a really large study, nearly 800,000 children in the military. And they followed these children uh, these were children who were given either antibiotic medica- medications or, or, or antacid medications within the first six months of life. Mm-hmm. And you think about, for me, what I was seeing when I came back from a, this around-the-world trip back in 2000, thinking I'm going to start my integrated practice, all of a sudden, every kid was being given Zantac. It was approved for infant reflux. Yes. Right? And so you see the number of children who are being put on antacid medications for, quote, reflux. And I say, quote, because, you know, we, we need to really yes. think about, is it really reflux that needs yes. to be treated? Yes. But they followed these children over the next, I believe it was four years, and, and the risk of every single allergic disease, yeah. from eczema to asthma to urticaria to anaphylactic food allergies to EOE, was significantly increased, every single. That's- and the researchers note it was likely due, I mean, they were, you know, surprise, surprise for us functional medicine practitioners, but likely due to the shift in that early infant microbiome that then as we know, right, care and function medicine, that it once you have that shift in your microbiome in that early stage of infancy, if you hit about two or three years of age without having achieved a balance in your microbiome, it is so much more challenging to change. And so yes. that early imprinting and, and education yes. that the gut yes. does to that child's developing immune system, brain, right. hormone system yeah. can sometimes be irreparable and I, I, not irreparable. I never want to say that because I know there are going to be parents listening to this who are thinking, oh my gosh, my kid had you know, antibiotics right. you know, yep. at two months of age or, oh my gosh, they were put on antacid medications. It's never irreparable. It just gets harder. So if we have this information, we know this, we can intervene early on and yes, antibiotics can be life-saving. I would never say, don't give your antibiotics, you know, don't give your three-month-old infant antibiotics if your doctor says it's needed, but let's do some mop-up. Let's 
let's use our functional medicine tools to clean up the damage that's been done so that they can go on to thrive and have a healthy gut brain connection, gut immune system connection, gut hormone connection. Absolutely. Thank you for that. And we, I, I, I would like that. I'd like to pop that citation um, onto your show notes. So if you could Absolutely. just shoot it over to me, that would be, that that's such, such an important thing. And so, you know what, to that end, one more comment. I would really like you to, <laughs> no pressure, I'm putting you on the spot, <laughs> to do a, if you are open to doing a blog for us, just on, um, well, specifically, I was thinking about an advanced, a big question that I'm asked. We have a clinic immersion program where other um, clinicians and physicians transitioning into functional medicine are tracking with our practice. And we talk about PEDS a lot. How do I dose PEDS? What am I doing? And, you know, if you've got some resources that we could put out there for some of these basic um, ideas that you're, you know, that you're so experienced in and thinking about uh, what resources to use um, in functional medicine for treating uh, kids, you know, and, um, what else did I have? I was thinking about some of the interventions you like to use. Just kind of a general brief primer. I sure. Would, yeah, I'd, love, I'd love to. I mean, so important because you reach so many functional medicine practitioners and, you know, it, it, there really are not too many venues for mm -hmm. practitioners to dive into pediatric yeah. functional medicine. That's right. And, and yeah, you know, so many practitioners have adults that they've treated for Hashimoto's or chronic fatigue or whatever concern that they have. And now these parents and grandparents want to know, how do I prevent this from happening to my child? Or my child is already showing signs of having some immune dysfunction and dysregulation. What can I do? And so, you know, Children are not just little adults, so we can't just treat them like, you know, little, a third of a size <laughs> adult yes. in the same way, right? There are different nuances. And of course, taking supplements, there's lots of different tricks to get supplements into kids, but it's not just a matter of, oh yeah, go on this elimination diet, you know, for three months and, you know, take all these supplements. We need to really figure also practically as practitioners, how can we help our kids and how can we help our parents go through this process together so that their kids can come out on the other side healthy and thriving, but also understanding how to make those healthy decisions for the rest of their lives to become healthy, thriving adults. Yeah. And it is pretty darn extraordinary, you know, working with peds myself, not exclusively, but they do form a percentage of my practice to see that, you know, to the, the, the light turn on and to see healing and to know that not only have you altered the trajectory or not, actually, I, I, I don't want to take the, the credit, this child and the, and the family has altered the trajectory, not only of the child's health, but there's always this um, impact on the family. There's a big ripple effect when family takes on healing um, with a child and then that kid's existence on the planet you know, and their offspring. And I mean, it's just the ripple effect when, 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 when working with peds specifically is, it's just extraordinary. At least yes. I'm sure that's what you get to, and you get to live that and breathe that. Yes. I mean, you know, it has its, it has its pros and its cons, right? I mean, I love working with families, but then also sometimes it's challenging working yeah. with families, yeah, right? Yeah. So. Okay. Let's jump in. And um, I'm just, I, I, I would also, you know, talking about the blog, I'd love to have you come in and do a teach-in for our clinic immersion. So we'll just, I'm going to bug you about all those things. later. <laughs> We're going to yep. have like the Dr. Song show over here. Um, 
Okay, let's talk about pans and pandas. Let you know, as with everything that you've mentioned uh, in this intro, these are conditions we're seeing more and more. Um, def just talk, define it, um, or cl and clarify the difference, um, and just introduce us, and then we're going to jump into how you're addressing it in your practice. Yes. So I do a lot of teaching on pans and pandas uh, to parents and practitioners. Um, I see a lot of kids, unfortunately, with pans and pandas. I, we have actually right here at Stanford, uh, Dr. Jenny Frankovich is the head of the Stanford Pants Clinic. Um, but as, as I'll talk about, you know, their admission criteria uh, for patients to their pants clinic is uh, is fairly narrow, and I think that we are missing so many other children yeah. who have underlying pans and pandas but don't necessarily fit uh, what are considered currently the diagnostic criteria. So, you know, what is the difference? PANS stands for Pediatric Acute Onset Neuropsychiatric Syndrome, and PANS can have infectious triggers and it can have non-infectious triggers. Now we're more familiar with approaching the infectious triggers. So the infectious triggers can include strep. When PANS is triggered by strep, that's when we call it PANDAS. So PANDAS is actually a subset of PANS. And PANDAS stands for Pediatric Autoimmune Neuropsychiatric Disorders Associated with Streptococcal Infections. But we recognize that there are many, many other infections that can trigger PANS that are non-strep infections. I will say the strep that we're thinking of can be in the throat, so classic strep throat, but it can also be impetigo caused by strep on the skin, and it can also be perianal and perivaginal strep, which really stems from strep gut dysbiosis. But the other infections can include Lyme and its co-infections, herpes 1 and 2, herpes 6, which is the roseola virus, Epstein-Barr virus, mycoplasma is, is documented, uh, Coxsackie, which is a hand, flu, uh, hand, foot, and mouth virus, um, even influenza virus. So we can look for different infections uh, when we're suspicious for PANS. Um, and then non-infectious triggers can include environmental toxins. So mycotoxins, heavy metals, uh, these are less well described, but, but there are cases of kids with PANS where we just can't find an infectious trigger. So then we need to dive in and look at, are there environmental triggers or toxic triggers that are creating these PANS symptoms? So what are the PANS symptoms? Now the diagnostic Let me, criteria- can I, just, uh -huh. can I just ask you before you jump into that? So yeah. hang on to that presentation. Um, at Stanford, are they limiting it to pandas or have they expanded to consider all of these other potential triggers or at least some of them? I know you said that they're not con con considering all of them, but have they expanded beyond um, just strep? That is such a great question. Um, you know, in the consensus statement of which, you know, Dr. Frankovich is, is part of the, you know, PANS, PANDAS Consortium, Research Consortium, um, they do include in their triggering uh, infection, you know, diagnostic evaluation, mycoplasma and, you know, um, influenza, they do actually mention Lyme, although many practitioners would kind of wave their hands about Lyme, <laughs> mm. unfortunately. But, um, but when, but when uh, you really look at their, the clinical consensus treatment, it really is still focused on the strap. 
and using antibiotics for strep treatment and strep prophylaxis. And so at the PANS clinic at Stanford and for what I'm seeing for more, quote, conventional PANS doctors, um, they're really, really mostly just treating strep. Um, so the kids okay. that I see are still going to be on antibiotic medications targeted for strep. And I do see quite a few kids who have viral triggers. Yeah. And there's not a lot of research being done on what about those kids? We know that viruses are some of the main triggers for the cell danger response that Dr. Navio uh, researches and discusses. And so I, I would say it's a bit limiting mm -hmm. in terms of how the PANS clinic is treating kids uh, because there are so many other triggers. Also, you know, when they are accepting kids into the PANS clinic, it's very difficult to quote, get in, um, but they're really looking at those kids who have an abrupt and dramatic onset okay. of their neuropsychiatric symptoms, like, like a light you know, switched and overnight, they go yes. from a neurotypical child, so they want children who have a neurotypical baseline, who then suddenly have OCD, anxiety, you know, rages, food restriction, physical signs like sleep disturbances, urinary problems like frequent urination, handwriting decline, cognitive decline. Yes. Um, so that is very, very important for research. I completely understand that. Um, but some of the controversy comes into play with when we look at kids that I see with pans and pandas, or what I would diagnose as pans and pandas, who have autoimmune markers, who have markers of autoimmune encephalitis, but have a more subtle onset. You know, these are kids, and, and you know, very few of our kids, to be totally honest, are completely neurotypical at baseline. I mean, yes. you know, what kid doesn't have some sensory issues or some behavioral issues going on? You know, what kid doesn't have some underlying anxiety nowadays? Yeah. Very, very few kids, could you say, are completely neurotypical, and then they switched over immediately. Yeah. So what I see more are those kids who may have kind of a baseline, the sensory issues, the behavioral issues, some low-level kind of chronic anxiety, maybe some, you know, separation anxiety. And then all of a sudden parents notice, well, there's something that's a little different, but they can blame it on something else, like baby sister was born, or they started preschool, um, or you know, they started kindergarten and it was really rough. Uh, and so there's always something to blame for this transition and this quote phase, except then the phase doesn't end and things just get worse and worse and worse. So you know, what I would recommend and encourage for practitioners who are out there in the field if you see children and teenagers where something's just a little different, if parents say, you know, they're just not quite the same, something's different, I don't know exactly when it happened, it seemed like it was around the time maybe, you know, they were, um, you know, having to, had a flu, or maybe it was around the time um, that they had a really stressful experience. But if you hear those words that something's a little different and it hasn't gotten better, um, then I would investigate whether or not pans or pandas could be in the mix. Um, I'm gonna uh, now. I'm gonna guess. First of all, I want to just thank you deeply for that clarification. Because for all of us in our training, it's this neurotypical so, and then sudden onset deterioration. Yeah. Uh, you know, and we need to really. What you're saying is we need to really let that let you know let that go. That that's really that's kind of an isolated less yeah. common presentation. 
Yeah, and and I, I totally agree. And you know, and I, I think about this one teenager who she's always had some anxiety. Yes. Um, and uh, and she and I'd seen her when she was really little. They moved to Texas, and then the family came back, and I hadn't seen her in years. But the mom had reached out because at that point she was put on. Uh, couple of different psychiatric medications and because she was hitting a crisis point where her OCD and her food restriction was getting more intense and she was starting to cut and starting to have some suicidal ideation. Mm. And so, you know, the mom just was at her wits end because the meds weren't helping that much, maybe taking a little bit of the edge off. So, and when I saw her, she was a different kid than what I had remembered her being as, as a younger child. Yeah. And the other tip off too, just from clinically, when you look at these children, they're yes. going to be in this fight or flight mode. So look at their pupils. If their pupils are dilated, she had mm. these bright blue eyes and her pupils were almost as big as the rest of, as the blue in her eyes. Mm. Um, you can look at what are called piano fingers, just have them extend their hands and see if they have a little tremor in their hands. Now, what was interesting about this girl, she almost had tremors all over her body. I mean, she just was a bit shaky and trembling. And her motor skills, she used to be a competitive soccer player and a cheerleader. She was having accidents all the time, clumsy, tripping over herself. She had bruises all over herself because she just, from that um, sort of core tone and, and fine motor and gross motor control, she was, not, she was subtly declining. And wow. her school progress was slowly, slowly declining. And so she had very, very, very elevated anti-DNA strep antibodies um, when I checked. And so put her on azithromycin, got her on some anti-inflammatories, and literally, now this is one of the cases where, I mean, you hope for this, yeah. right? That within two, three months, they're back. Now that's not always the case, but for her, that was the case where within two, three months, even after the first week of antibiotics, the parent and the child were noticing, oh my gosh, you know, things are improving. You know, way more than when they started psychiatric medications. And we watched her anti-DNA speed titers go down. We watched her clinically improve. She's back to being coordinated, happy at school with her friends, focusing, getting her homework done. She's playing soccer again. She went back to her psychiatrist who, and, you know, presented her with this data and, and the mom and the child were ready to start weaning some of the meds. The psychiatrist told her, you don't have pandas. There's no way. It wasn't sudden enough. Could you imagine telling a child that, you know, that, no. that they don't have a, a medical condition that was, that actually was the, the reason for her worsening. And now she knows that she's so much better given these medical interventions targeted at pandas. Yeah. So anyhow, you know, I think we, we as practitioners in the field need to stick together. And, and as we get more information and knowledge about how pans may present in a less than sudden and acute way, we can then shift the dialogue and hopefully get more research into these more subacute cases. So I'm going to guess that a lot of the cases, a lot of the patients coming to you, their main, and with what you're saying here, is there may not be a clear cut illness that they recall necessarily. Would you say that that's true? 
Yes. You know, we, I dig into the history though. You really try to yeah. use your clinical tools, use your clinical history because sometimes parents, most parents will, will be able to say, well, it was around this time. Yes. And yes well, were there any weird rashes around right. that time? Any change in diet around that time? You know, any, did you move homes? Was there a, a spill in the laundry machine, you know, a flood in the garage? Um, right. Really trying to figure out other clues as to what you might want to test because the other concern we have with kids there are only so many vials of blood you can actually collect from a child in one city right and so Mm -hmm. yep so i can give you this laundry list of labs to check but you really want to in that initial stage that first stage target what labs you're going to order what blood labs you're going to order because Unfortunately, you know, it's just we we can't take as much blood and it's not that pleasant for children. Right. So when I when I do order blood work, I always, always also prescribe a lidocaine numbing cream. You know, ah, and, okay. Just, right. You're just reading my mind. Did I deep I mean, yeah, this is incredibly useful. I was thinking yeah. about blood drop, how much you're gonna get and how yes. do you do it and all of that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So really important to do that because you do not want your child to have a very traumatic first blood draw experience because that will ruin every single subsequent time you need to draw blood, right? And so make sure that you use a numbing cream so that that kids are confident and feel comfortable that it's not going to hurt, that it's not scary. You know, the other thing that I've also recommended is to call the lab in, or call the phlebotomy place in advance and ask who there is good at drawing for kids because it's night and day. I mean, it's massive, you know, can make or break the experience who's actually doing the phlebotomy. That's right. That's right. And I have in my, in the San Francisco Bay area, we have our list of, you (laughs) you know, great places and great phlebotomists, but you may not, you may not know that if you're just delving into this pediatric work. So calling around and finding out the names of phlebotomists who are especially good at working with children and making sure that they're there. Uh, when your child is going to get the blood draw is really, really important as well. Um, not all labs will do test kits either. So, I mean, that's not just a kid thing. That's also for adults. And knowing if you're going to order other, you know, like the Genova NutraVal, which I don't typically do for kids because it's a lot, a lot of blood, blood yeah. right? Um, but if you're going to do that, you need to make sure that you know which labs are going to accept test yes. kits like that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, targeting, getting, trying as much as possible to get the history to know, you know, did they have hand, foot, and mouth as a kid? Well, then I might want to check because sometimes the hand, foot, and mouth that they had when they were three could still, could have laid the, the groundwork, that framework for immune dysregulation that then when they're seven and get exposed to strep created that imbalance and now that autoimmune reactivity and they're, they're presenting with pan symptoms. So getting that history, you know, do they do a lot of camping and hiking? Then yeah, check for Lyme and co-infections. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, check for your mycotoxins if there's a, a history of possible mold exposure. I mean, let the history guide which tests you will do on that first round because you can always get more tests, but you really want to, as much as possible, maximize the chance that you're going to find something actionable with that first blood draw. Um, Okay. All right. And I want to talk about, um, you know, some of the other tests you're doing because you've mentioned gut, you're mentioning diet, et cetera. Um, do you, you know, you have a six-step approach. We're going to uh, include this on our show notes to pans and pandas. Do you want to walk us through that six-step approach? Or actually, you know, and you were also going to talk a little bit about the pathophysiology 
Um, do you, yeah. Yeah. You know, I can, I can walk through the six step approach and kind of include pathophysiology, right? And and include your, you know, go do a little bit more detail on your workup, you know, include absolutely baselines and then maybe some of the functional medicine investigation. Okay. Yeah. Jump, jump in. Yeah. You know, I mean, in functional medicine, the beauty of functional medicine is that we really can look at the pathophysiology of whatever condition we are approaching with fresh eyes and see, you know, with this particular condition, what do we understand currently about the pathophysiology, what's happening at a cellular level, and what tests might help elucidate whether or not that's going on with their kids and what pharmaceutical or natural interventions can we use to rebalance what's going on. So, you know, for, for any functional medicine practitioner who's listening right now, whatever your kids present with, you know, whether it's, you know, autoimmune encephalitis, you know, PANS or PANDAS, which is an autoimmune encephalitis, or whether it's, um, you know, eczema or whether it's Crohn's disease. You want to look at the pathophysiology and then see where, where are the tests that might appropriately figure out if that's what's going on for my kids and then what supplements, what medications might be useful. So with the pathophysiology for PANS and PANDAS, we know that there is a uh, an imbalance in the TH17 immune response. So that does play a role. We know that the TH17 Mm. immune dysregulation is involved in many, many autoimmune illnesses, Mm -hmm. um, including rheumatoid arthritis and multiple sclerosis. And there is evidence that, that with PANS, that TH17 immune dysregulation is involved. So then when we look at, well, what are the points of intervention there? Well, we could use things like CBD or low-dose naltrexone, which can all impact that TH17 regulation. Um, We know that there is also this underlying cell danger response and mast cell activation for, I would say, you know, I, I would say for all of our kids, but um, I guess nothing is ever all, yeah. <laughs> you know, but, but when we understand the cell danger response as presented by Dr. Navio, and I would highly recommend if you have not read Dr. Navio's work, Dr. Navio, Robert Navio, uh, is, and it's spelled N-A-V-I-A-U-X. It's going to be in the show notes. But he has two articles that I think are must-reads. For any practitioner who's working with adults and children with chronic illness. So the first one is, um, was released in 2014 in the journal Mitochondrion, and it's titled The Metabolic Features of the Cell Danger Response. So that set stay on the groundwork for what is a cell danger response. His second article just came out last year and it's in mitochondrion and it's called metabolic features and regulation of the healing cycle, a new model for chronic disease pathogenesis and treatment. Oh, great. Uh, so what these show and what Dr. Navio shows is that the cell danger response can be triggered by many, many different kinds of insults, whether it's physical trauma, um, chemical trauma, or infectious trauma, even emotional trauma. Mm-hmm. And so you have these cell danger response activities that are occurring, which are normal adaptive responses to injury. 
right, to danger. It's our cells' primitive way of, of dealing with this danger and responding and healing. What happens for some of us and many of us nowadays living in our, quote, toxic world, unfortunately, because things like glyphosate and artificial colors have been shown to also trigger the cell danger response. And so we're living in the state where the cell danger response is perpetually activated. And then if we have these infections that we're not able to deal with, we have then these symptoms that show up. And for kids with pans and panis, it's these neuropsychiatric symptoms. You know, for kids with autism, it's other neurodevelopmental symptoms. So it may present differently, but the bottom line, it's still, it's still a matter of the cell danger response not being able to shut off, not being able to go through it's all its various stages and then heal. And so we may be dealing with, if it's years later after the initial infection, it might be that we're dealing more with the cell danger response and mast cell activation and not necessarily the initial infection. So as we go through the treatment and you're working with kids with pans or pandas, you want to understand it's not just about killing, killing, killing the bugs that are causing yes. pans or pandas. It's about repairing what's going on at a cellular level because there may not be a lot to kill anymore, but we need to do a lot of mop up to get that immune system balanced and working again. And That's this- an- uh-huh. Go ahead, finish that thought. Well, this is so this is where functional medicine has the key yes. to really heal our children. Because, you know, in in academic centers like the Stanford Pants Clinic, which I have huge and immense respect for, but they're focused on the killing and immunosuppression. Right, you know, there and there are, you know, they are working with immune modulation too with IVIG, but IVIG is not necessarily uh, accessible to all of our patients. Functional medicine really gets that. Well, how do we not just reduce the inflammation, you know, reduce the the bugs that are causing all of this inflammation and triggering this response or get rid of the toxins? How do we really not just do mop up, but healing and restoration at the cellular level so that with PANS especially, which is a waxing and waning condition and flares in neuropsychiatric symptoms are more the norm than complete remission. How do we get our kids to a state where they can have a cold or flu and have it be a normal cold or a flu where they feel crappy, right? And they feel yucky for maybe several days, but they don't get triggered into a massive flare of their OCD and anxiety. Thank you. That's a, just, just a, I just want to underline that an exclamation point that, um, okay. So my question is, this is a, this is a dialogue that we're having in functional medicine all of the time. And that is teasing out when we are spending a lot of time in the remove of the yep. five or six R's when we're going after, when we're doing aggressive killing and when we're not. And not only is this big in pans and pandas as we're talking about, but I would love to have your thoughts on if you, you know, I, cause I think we could probably extend it to, um, uh, you know, looking at um, Epstein-Barr or cytomegalovirus. I mean, we're looking mm-hmm. at we're looking at infectious triggers, that broad spectrum of infectious triggers that you outlined in the beginning as not only leading to autoimmune encephalitis, but also many of the chronic conditions that we're seeing today in general. And, right. and this piece on, you know, when are we doing the heavy lifting there with kill? And when are we actually doing this full tilt functional um, functional medicine approach. And a lot of us are doing all of it, but I would, I, I, I don't know that we, I, it, it's possible that we're spending more time than need be in kill, because as you say, that journey is done or the volumes turned down on that acute infection. And now this chronic um, 
you know, danger responses turned up. So what, what, yeah. what are your thoughts on that? Oh, so important. And you know, when I, when I took my first IFM course, it was called the four R approach. Yeah, that's right. That's right. right. We've added um, a couple. <laughs> that's right. There was no fifth R and what is the fifth R? So after, you know, over these 15 years of practicing, um, the really and truly, I believe that the fifth R, that rebalance, that restoring the mind-body-spirit connection, that that is the ultimate piece that will get our children and adults to that final healing and also keep them there, right? Because we don't just want to get them, quote, whole and and healthy and well, just to have them relapse with the next insult. And so it's this piece, this piece of really, how do we get back that emotional and spiritual connection to our health? That is, I think the most important, but the most challenging, because we don't have a lot of tools, you know, in our toolkit to address that, you know, as, as conventionally trained practitioners initially. And so this is where we're, we're working into also the, the, the work that children and adults have to do to get well. You know, it's, it can be so much easier to pop a pill. It can be relatively easy to change your diet. You know, it can be easy to, you know, relatively easy to remediate the mold from your house. But then to actually take that next step and do the work of, you know, meditating, being mindful, getting enough sleep, you know, exercising, connecting with family and community, you know, that doesn't quote look like medicine, right? right. You know, when we're, t when we're talking about it from a conventional or a functional medicine standpoint, yeah. uh, but it's, but it's not enough to just pay lip service to that and say, you know what, let's, I recommend that you download the Calm app and do 20 minutes of, of meditation a day. We need to really educate ourselves on why this is so important so that we can educate our parents and our patients and our children so that they really get and understand and know how truly and fully important it is to focus on this. It's not the last, you know, kind of bottom of the totem pole step. It's way up there. <laughs> you know, if we want to, if we really want to get um, healing going and, and, and staying. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying this content, you might want to know about our functional medicine clinic immersion programs available to all qualified practitioners who want to advance their applied clinical skills and build confidence in helping even their toughest cases. Delivered fully online, our program provides live mentorship option, access to our clinic's discussions of real patient cases, teach-ins with expert colleagues, and the opportunity to become part of an engaged and nurturing community of peers. Most importantly, you'll get the support you need to bridge the gap between functional medicine theory and practice. Spaces for our one-year mentorship option are limited, so early application is advised. Please visit drcarefitzgerald.com, choose the Professionals tab, and select Professional Education Programs to find out more about the options available and to apply. And now back to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine. Uh, thank you. Thanks. I, so, so talk to me about, just go, let's, I want to flesh out the steps. Yeah. Uh, okay. I, I just, because I know people are going to really to, I just want to circle us back to, to this. And I'm assuming, um, Elisa, that you're incorporating your, I'm sure even in step one, while you might be going aggressively after removing the infection, if you've determined it's there and active and you have to, but you're probably also introducing them 
to the idea of, you know, breathing or, you know, totally, not, totally. Right? Okay, yeah. Go, go yeah. So I, so because I want to clarify that these steps are not necessarily sequential. Okay. Right. It's not that you have to do step one first and you can't do, you know, step six. Right. Um, these are just different. And I guess I should name them differently. Right. I mean, they're not necessarily steps. They're different touch points. They're different strategies that all need to be incorporated into a whole and comprehensive treatment plan. Uh, and so, you know, the first of, you know, for lack of a better word, I'll call it step right now, but the first step with pans and pandas um, and, you know, we really could, you know, um, broaden this out to any inflammatory condition for kids or any, you know, uh, immune dysfunction in kids. But when we're talking about pans or pandas, we want to know, well, what first step identify and treat whatever the initial triggers are, um, whether it's infectious or toxic. And again, we're going to let history be our guide. But the reason this is important is, is that we need to know what are we treating? <laughs> you know, what are we using antimicrobials for if we're using antimicrobials? Uh, and so with that, um, for, for PANDAS, we're going to be doing throat swabs, nasal swabs, and anal swabs for strep. We're doing a, a full culture, not just a rapid strep, but a full culture. Um, I, I have many, many kids who their strep infection was really purely just perianal or perivaginal. And if you don't work with a lot of kids, what does perianal or perivaginal strep looks like? If you look at their bottom, it literally looks like someone took a red pen and outlined a circle, you know, perianally or perivaginally and filled it in. <laughs> it's a sharply demarcated ring of erythema. Uh, and so with, and, and so many parents have no idea that that's strep. They just know their kid's bottom is a little uncomfortable or itchy or sometimes painful. They put diaper cream on it or calendula. It gets a little better, then it gets a little worse. So that you always want to look there as well. And you're also going to be checking your blood and anti-streptolysin O and an anti-DNA B strep antibody. Now, if your labs are not familiar with the anti-DNA B strep antibody, because it's a very, very, very old test, it's what we used to use to check for rheumatic fever um, in kids with strep, but, uh, uh, and um, the post-strep glomerulonephritis, um, but it is an autoimmune marker uh, as a result of strep, and now we're using it as a marker for PANDAS, um, but you want to make sure you to check with your lab and clarify that it's the anti-DNA B strep antibody, not the anti-DS DNA antibody, right? The anti-double-stranded DNA antibody. Um, I, I did have labs confuse that in the beginning, but now the labs are on me. They know it's an anti-DNA B strep antibody, but just make sure you clarify that. Um, I, I do check if it's relevant in the history, quantitative, right? You want quantitative, you want the numbers, quantitative IgG and IgM antibodies to various infections. The most common infections that I'll see are herpes 6, herpes 1 and 2, mycoplasma, and Epstein-Barr. But you also want to consider parvovirus B19, Coxsackie A and B, CMV, um, influenza, and of course, Lyme and other tick-borne infections. I, will, I would say Lyme and tick-borne infections are also on the more common range. Um, I okay. typically check infections first, um, but then if there's a history of mold or heavy metal issues, then I do check uh, the Great Plains urine mycotoxins. Heavy metals, I'll start with the urine porphyrins test. I don't start with an initial um, you know, urine toxic metals with a challenge. And where are you getting uh, the porphyrins panel from? I, I use doctor's data. Okay. Okay, good. 
Um, if you're going to do um, a challenge test, which again, it's not my first line. The reason I don't do a DMSA challenge as a first line is because I just, in this early stage, I don't really want to rock the boat too much. I use the urine preference test as an initial guide to, to see if I'm suspicious about heavy metals. Mm -hmm. And then I decide whether or not it's the right time to do, do a challenge test with the urine toxic metals. Um, there is a panel by Molecular Labs called the yes. Cunningham Panel, right? Uh, Madeline Cunningham de, de, uh, found that there were four um, uh, markers, one enzyme, CAM kinase 2, and uh, three auto, actually four autoimmune antibodies, two anti-dopamine receptor antibodies, an anti-lysoganglicide antibody, and anti-tubulin antibodies that seem to be correlated with PANDAS. Um, there is some controversy around this testing now, and the Stanford Pants Clinic does, uh, used to uh, test all their kids with the Cunningham panel, and now I believe they're not no longer using it for diagnostic criteria because they were finding that uh, you know even some kids who have, who didn't have quote pans or pants according to their criteria had elevated antibodies. Well, what I would say to that is, why on earth are kids making autoimmune antibodies against parts of their brain? Yes. <laughs> you know, whether or not you, you, they fit into the diagnostic criteria for pans and pandas, right. I kind of don't care, right? That's, that's, I shouldn't right. say that so flippantly. I do care because we need it for research. However, you know, when yes. we're in the front lines as functional medicine practitioners, what I tell patients and parents when they come in, you know what? Yes, it matters to me what you've been diagnosed with so I can look into the pathophysiology. But on the other hand, I don't really care because I'm still looking at all of the underlying biochemical imbalances that are going on regardless of your diagnosis. Right? Your diagnosis doesn't tell me how to treat you. It just tells me what things that I might want to consider in addition to really doing the functional medicine detective work. Thank you. I think that's a, I think it's just a really incredible point. And it would be a shame if they throw that test, you know, if that test is thrown out because the criteria is so narrow. That's right. You know, that would that's be a right. great, great loss. Now, if you do that test or if you're, you know, or some of the other standard labs that you're looking at where you're seeing high titers, are you, are you, are, well, even just presenting to you and you have a strong suspicion of pans or pandas, are you assuming leaky brain, leaky gut? Like, is that just in your list of, of issues that you're going to be addressing? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. Um, you know, I would say virtually all these kids are going to have some element of a leaky gut and, and yes. by virtue, they have a leaky brain. Um, and, you know, so part of the workup initially is also a comprehensive stool analysis, you know, whether or not you use Genova, their GI effects or, you know, doctor's data, their comprehensive stool analysis. Um, but I have seen kids where uh, even if they don't have outward signs on their bottom, you know, they don't have perianal or perivaginal strep, they have gamma and alpha strep in their gut. So that may be the pandas trigger, especially yeah. if you've cultured their nose and their mouth um, and their perianal area and it's not there, uh, but they have elevated, let's say they have elevated anti-streptolysin O or anti-DNA-SB antibodies. Yeah. Um, it may be that it's, it's what's in their gut. Um, but regardless, you know, I'm also looking at other elements of gut dysbiosis and gut functioning because we know that uh, Klebsiella, Citrobacter, they're various bacteria that can predispose to autoimmune phenomena. So even if they don't have strep in their gut, if they have Klebsiella or Citrobacter uh, and they're showing this autoimmune reactivity, I want to clean that up because I want to make sure that we, um, we don't have any persisting 
um, autoimmune triggers. Yes. Uh, you know, and this is, you know, I had one child, actually the whole family, unfortunately, and clearly there's something going on environmentally because there were uh, this family, the two brothers and the sister and the mom were all diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis. And uh, one of the, the daughter developed Crohn's. Um, mm. And it was not until we treated the Klebsiella in their gut that they all went into remission, which was Isn't remarkable. That, that's extraordinary. Yeah, it's right. kind of the, that's a little bit of the exception in my experience. But <laughs> but, but I also want to underscore like I should, what I should say is the exception is that that you find a trigger that's in everybody's guts and then you address it and you see full turnaround. That's a really awesome. Yeah, story. yeah, and you know, and so and the cases that you hear at presentations or in interviews like this, you know, for, for practitioners listening, there, there are not many miracle cures, right? You know, yeah. that is, you know, you, you, most of it is you plug along, you work with your patient, you know, there are ups and there are some downs and you just hope that the ups are higher than the downs. So you keep progressively moving in the upward trajectory. Um, so, you know, and with, well, huh? and you're addressing these various, imbalances that you're finding like the you know I, well i guess what i'm saying and the reason this is front of mind and i'm i know this is turning out to be a long podcast but um the reason that this is front of mind that i think we need to we need to be mindful around finding dysbiosis because we're going to find it in everybody and deciding and diagnosing you know, systemic conditions based on the presence of dysbiosis. You yes. kind of need to tease out. And so one of the things that I want to underscore that you said is that you're seeing, well, A, you've got this very clear clinical picture and B, you're also seeing the autoimmune titers. And in your case, you're looking at ASO and the, um, specifically the anti-DNA, what is the, t t it's, is it the anti-DNA B? Yeah, anti and then capital D, capital N, capital A, lowercase s, lowercase e, and then a separate capital B, anti-DNA okay. B. Okay. Now, so I, Carrie, your point is so, so great. And I, and I really want to emphasize that too, that when we're doing this testing, when I'm spouting off different tests, it is not to do every single test under the sun and treat the test. Right? You need to correlate what you're finding on tests clinically with what's going on with your patient. And you don't want to treat individual test numbers. You need to figure out, try to assess what are the priorities here? What are the top two, three, four, maybe five things that need to be addressed? Because once you address the, the key imbalances, many of the other imbalances will fall into place. And what I worry about, um, and it is a worry of mine, that you know, as, as we're training more and more functional medicine practitioners, how do we treat that approach? You know, that kind of really looking at the whole picture, how do we really make sure that functional medicine doesn't become a mirror image of conventional medicine where, where we're reductionistic, we're looking at labs and we're saying, oh, you need zinc because of this imbalance. You need you know, alpha lipoic acid because of this imbalance. You need whatever other things. And so patients come out with a list of 50 different supplements, yes. which is not going to be helpful. So, so I want to make sure that practitioners know um, not to be reductionistic, and especially with children. Yes. Children are amazing because for the most part, and I'm going to knock on wood on my desk here, for the most part, children are going to respond 
faster or more effectively to your treatments than adults because they don't have as many years of garbage yes. right in their system they don't have as many years of you know immune dysregulation and this cell danger response that is being triggered over and over and over again and really creating that cellular memory of inflammation and stress yes. So we can reverse things more easily. It's not always easy. And there are some kids who are really sick and, and you're kind of beating your head against the wall saying, what am I missing? What am I missing? But once you start seeing children, and I want every practitioner to feel comfortable seeing children because you can do so much for them. And that's where the fear comes in. Am I dosing right? You know, what about these medications? Is it safe for children? Yes. Um, so it, it, the training is so needed from that practical level because we need more, you know, practitioners out there yeah. doing this for kids. Yeah, and once you move into functional medicine, the reality is, is you know, if you are, if you've got it within your scope to work with kids, they're going, you're, they're going to be not, the parents are going to be knocking on your door. It's That's just right. unavoidable, and we yeah. need to, we need to, we, it's, it's. You know, we, 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 we just need to ha have room in our practice to really embrace working with, That's right. with kids That's if right. we can. I mean, I, you know, just a, a, a call out to all of you practitioners who are thinking about going into peas. I mean, I get calls literally like every day, emails every day of people, parents all over the country all over the world saying, is there someone like you that I can see? Yeah. And so, you know, if you guys were there, I would send patients to you, right? Okay. So for sure. Um, but that was, so that was kind of the, the step one that we got into, uh, you know, in terms of urine, I do do urine organic acid testing because that sometimes, you know, as you know, right, sometimes you do the stool analysis, it shockingly looks fine. Yes. Um, but then you do the, the organic acid testing, like, oh my gosh, look at all these dysbiosis markers. Yep. Right? But also, you know, there, the, it is a better, uh, not a better, but, you know, um, another way to assess mitochondrial function, which is so important when we're trying to manage that cell danger response, look at methylation, look at detoxification and oxidative stress. So it really does help guide me. And you're, I mean, pee is easy, right? Yes. You know, it's, it's a little harder for kids who aren't potty trained and you can't use it for kids under two years of age. Um, but, um, but that being said, you know, it's a relatively easy test. It's painless. Kids pee all the time, yes. <laughs> you know? So, uh, and one of the markers on the urine organic acid test that you may not be paying too much attention to, but when I'm suspicious for pans, if I see uh, an elevated quinolinic acid, oh, yeah. that does give me pause and, you know, and look to see, are there other signs of neuroinflammation and should I be suspicious for pans? Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. I do think that that's a, it's a, it's a marker whose time has yet to come. Yeah. <laughs> Extremely useful. Yeah. Um, okay. So we've got, uh, we, I, I want you to walk us through steps, the, the, the remainder of the steps, yes. what you're thinking yes. about, and then also give us, you know, just give resources. I know you're going to actually be teaching um, and we'll, we'll, we'll be able to make some of this content where you really do a nice drill down available to or yes. at least we'll give links and all of that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So go, okay. Go. So let's, let's whiz through the next steps. So the next, this next stage is um, putting out the fire, right? Reducing the inflammation because these kids' brains are on fire. They're inflamed. They're not feeling well. And so we have tools for that. I do use for kids who have, a, um, you know, who are in severe kind of inflammatory distress, I do use steroid bursts you know, three to five days, two milligrams per kilogram of prednisone up to 60 milligrams, um, you know, for kids just like you would a child who's having a severe asthma flare. 
So that can be, can be a tool to use just to quickly put out the fire. It doesn't fix things, but it lets kids have a little reprieve. Also using NSAID medications like ibuprofen or, or um, naproxen can work very well too. And in fact, if you're not sure if your child has PANS and the labs are kind of equivocal, maybe the Epstein-Barr titers, the IgG, um, levels are, are high, but you're not sure if they're significant. What I'll do is a trial of ibuprofen, you know, 10 milligrams per kilogram, three times a day, uh, over and have, have parents do it consistently for a week and notice what their neuropsychiatric symptoms are doing. Is handwriting improved? Are pupils less dilated? Are they less anxious, less OCD, you know, able to eat dinner a little bit? So that can be a diagnostic trial using ibuprofen or even steroids. Um, but what are the, some of the anti-inflammatories that I use? Of course, your omega-3 essential fatty acids. I do use quite a bit of curcumin. Uh, quercetin can be a great uh, kind of anti-inflammatory as well. And you can't forget the power of food. So many of our kids are um, just eating junk, right? I mean, that's yeah. just that's the standard American diet, but really, really um, focusing on getting that rainbow of phytonutrients and antioxidants, you know, with smoothies and, you know, sneaking it in as much as possible and getting the junk out. Uh, really, really important. You know, many of these kids are going to be highly reactive to dyes and artificial um, uh, flavors and preservatives. So it's really important to get those out. And are you doing a fairly involved kind of an elimination diet? Uh, I mean, I know working with kids that can be somewhat challenging like what would be a kind of a foundational diet you're think you're going to likely prescribe with somebody with pans yeah the foundation uh, you know the foundation is going to be just like for adults gluten and dairy free okay right? we, we have to try that um especially if there are cravings you know kids who are craving cheese 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 milk 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 you gotta you gotta figure out how to cut that out um also getting rid of any of the artificial dyes colors um, dyes, flavors, and preservatives, really important. Okay. And, re and reducing sugar. So I'd say those are the four big things to hit, Good. which is not very different than for adults, right? Um, and then, you know, and I may do um, a food sensitivity panel. I, I use Alatest because it's very yep. cost effective and um, it does seem, you know, relatively accurate uh, correlating with some of the symptoms that I see in kids. Um, and then, um, the next step is going to be immunomodulation. So once you've put out the fire or reduce the flames to kind of an ember, then we need to keep the fire down. We need to keep it from developing into another, um, you know, firestorm, another forest fire. And so, you know, the quote conventional treatment would be IVIG. IV immunoglobulin, uh, which can be very effective for some kids. Although what's interesting is I'm, I'm not finding it to be as effective as, um, as I think as uh, I would hope for, for many kids, I think, you know, huh. it, it can be helpful. It can be a game changer for some, yes. right? Uh, so you definitely want to consider that. Uh, it's also very expensive. It's also yes. very challenging to get it covered by insurance. Yeah. Uh, and you need to make sure that um, you're using treatment doses for PANS, which are going to have immunomodulatory effects, which, and that's a high dose, high dose IVIG, which is two grams per kilogram over two days. Now, you know, you don't want to use what are called replacement doses or low doses. If you have, you know, let's say CVID, combined variable immunodeficiency, the, tr the replacement dose, because you have hypogammaglobulinemia, is going to be 500 milligrams per kilo once a month. 
but some studies are showing that low doses of IVIG can actually worsen PANDAS. So you want to do the high dose, um, but again, it's invasive, it's not always accessible. There are lots of side effects with IVIG. However, again, it can be game changers for some. Like what, what I, percentage, uh -huh. yeah, what percentage are, is it game changer for like just Oh my gosh, that's a, that's a tough one, right? Because, um, because, and I think it depends uh, on the practitioner, but um, yeah. I would say for, like for, in my practice, it's probably been maybe a third of kids are do great, but some okay. kids, but it's not, you know, I've, I've had some kids where like they get the IVIG and within a month you're like, wow, that was amazing. It was a reboot, right? You want a, an immune reset. Um, but, you know, for, for some kids, maybe a little improvement, but you're like, oh, was that because of the IVIG? Was it not? Um, I will say when I, so I have asked parents, you know, I did last year for Pandas Awareness Day. I had um, a bunch of parents with me in a room and we did like a live uh, parent panel. Um, and I asked each of the parents what they thought the game changers were mm -hmm. um, and the game changers were um, I mean one one parent said the steroid burst I mean steroids of course I mean they're like magic yeah. right <laughs> but they're not gonna do anything they can be yeah um, but um, several of the parents said it was uh, either low-dose naltrexone uh -huh. or SPMs ah, these, interesting. These, right these specialized yeah. pro-resolving mediators which Good. I use quite a bit of for my kids with PANS and with autoimmune reactivity. Yeah. Um, and so that's the only company that makes it right now that has it formulated um, as a supplement is Metagenics. We may see more down the road, but I believe that they have a patent on it for a time being. Um, but it can, that can be a total game changer uh, in terms of uh, keeping the inflammation down and, and regulating the immune response. Well, how are you dosing those? You must be going, I'm, I'm assuming you're going a little bit more aggressively. Yeah. What are you, okay. Well, so, you know, it used to be that they were little tiny capsules, which were great for kids learning how to swallow. Um, and I could dose it anywhere from one to sometimes four capsules twice a day for my bigger kids. Now they're larger capsules. They've consolidated it. So they're larger capsules. So we're kind of limited on the dose. It's hard to squeeze out half, you know, a, a, a half the gel and know how much you're getting. So, you know, I'll, I'll typically start with one capsule twice a day, you know, oh. kind of regardless of size. Okay. Um, for bigger kids, I'll do two caps twice a day, and then we'll do that for maybe a week or two and see how they're going and see if we need to maintain that, or we can drop them down, you know, to maintenance. Good. Wow. On the day. Wow. Okay, that's great. So that's not, that's not you know, I, re I like using SPMs as well, and I guess I'm just, you know, I tend to start pretty aggressively, and I'm just, that's fabulous that, that, that you're not finding that's um, needed. And yeah. And, you know, and that too, you know, in terms of, of medica medications and supplements for kids, um, I mean, it's just like adult patients that, that you guys are all seeing. It can be really interesting. Some kids just need a touch mm -hmm. and they have, you know, huge responses. Yes. And other kids are like, oh my gosh, I'm giving like more than I might an adult, right? Yes. In order to get a response. So you just have to really work individually with your patient. There's no standard, but for most kids, I'd say one twice a day is a great start. Um, but you know, low dose naltrexone, you know, I'll start low, maybe some kids also like 0.5 milligrams and then gradually work them up to typically a max of about three or three and a half milligrams. Um, 
CBD and also Chinese skullcap have also been shown to help modulate that TH17 response that we're finding to be abnormal for, for uh, many kids with PANS and PANDAS. Um, and when you're using Chinese skullcap, I don't have great doses. I mean, the way I typically dose, if, if there's an unknown, is it's not perfect, but there's a rule called Clark's Rule, where you take the, the kid's weight in pounds divided by 150, like the average yes. adult weight, and then that's a percentage of, percentage of the adult dose that you would use. So for a 50-pound child, they would get about a third of what you might dose for your adult patient. Um, it's not perfect, and we know that kids' livers process things differently, their kidneys process things differently, but, um, but it's, it's the best we have sometimes. Yes, and I think it's a reasonable kind of a safe starting point if you're just moving into treating peds. Yes. Yep. Absolutely. Wouldn't you? Okay. Okay. I totally agree with that. Um, the skull cap, I just want to just emphasize that it's Chinese skull cap. Um, there's a, it's a Bicolon sinensis, I believe is the herbal name, but there is also American skull cap or, um, you know, it's called ladder flora. Uh, but you want to use the Chinese skull cap because that, that, the one that's been shown to have more of the TH17 modulating um, effects. American skull cap is great, but, but you know, when we're talking about hands, we want to use a Chinese skull cap. Okay. Um, the next step is really doing all of our functional medicine work, right? You know, really looking how do we balance out the core clinical imbalances, you know, with optimizing diet and whatever, whatever nutritional insufficiencies or deficiencies you find on testing. Many, many kids are going to be low in zinc. Um, and I check a red blood cell zinc. Zinc, if you have um, low zinc, it's going to affect appetite, it's going to affect taste. So our pickiest kids, often just by giving them zinc, you're going to be able to open up their palate. Um, it's going to worsen sensory issues. Um, auditory sensitivities or the kids who can't stand the tags on their back or you know the, the, the seams in their socks. Um, and also, of course, you need zinc for healing any lining, like your gut lining. Right. Um, we're, of course, addressing leaky gut with your 5R, supporting methylation. Mitochondrial support is really important because with the mass uh, cell danger response, the first wave of that cell danger response is really a stress on the mitochondria and leakage of you know, different um, chemicals like ATP. We also have histamine leakage going on, which is where the mast cell activation comes into play. So supporting your mitochondria, um, supporting mast cell stabilization with quercetin and, and luteolin. Actually, I, actually, SPM has some nice, well, I don't know about mast cell stab stabilization, but if, if there's a clear IgE kind of bias, if allergies are in the mix too, there's some nice research on us. Yeah. Oh, and you know what? So many kids with, um, with pans and pandas, they flare big time during allergy season. So, you know, uh, during springtime pollen season, I have a lot of kids who flare and wow. parents are like, I don't, why are they flaring? Cause they're not showing typical nose or eye symptoms but they're showing it in their neuropsychiatric symptoms because we have to remember histamine is a yes. neurotransmitter too. Yes, yes, yes. Right? Well, and it's going to increase leaky gut and then by extension, you know, leaky blood brain barrier. Yeah. Wow. That's yeah. A really good. That's a, a handy pearl. Can I just say that, um, 
Elisa is, 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 is mentioning a lot of areas to look at. And if you're feeling overwhelmed, if you've got your functional medicine training, just lean on your matrix. And as she underscored a lot in the beginning of our conversation, you're taking this careful history. So you figure out the areas you need to zero in on and you map it to the matrix. And that's going to also give you the support on the areas you need to zero in on so that you don't have to, you know, do a lot of everything. Yes. Thank you so much for saying that, Kara, because really, but, you know, when we start off in functional medicine, we, we feel like, and I did this too, you know, yes, way back, you know, do. <laughs> over a decade ago, you feel like, oh my gosh, I have to do every single test under the sun and I have to yeah. do every single supplement. Yeah. Um, and that's a great way to learn, right? Absolutely a great way to learn. But now over the years, I've learned enough patterns where I actually do very little testing to be totally honest, mm. um, you know, for my pants, cause I want to know, uh, infectious titers for sure. Um, and I want to make sure that they don't have any outright nutritional insufficiencies or deficiencies, but you know, and you can't tell what the gut is like without doing a stool test, but I don't do a ton of testing. You know, am I going to support methylation anyway? Of course, right? Because I'm going to presume that their methylation is stressed, even if they don't have a family history of autoimmunity or cancers or autism, right? Because just by being sick, it puts puts stress on your methylation pathways. (laughs) You know, am I going to, you know, support their mitochondria? Most likely, but you know, some of the clinical signs, what I ask in, in my in my history for mitochondrial symptoms, I ask kids, first of all, how much energy do they have? You know, kids should have a lot of energy. They should be running around. So parents who say, yeah, they're really tired all the time, or kids say, I'm really tired, and they're laying on the floor all the time, that's not normal. Some parents will say, oh my gosh, they have tons of energy, they're running around all the time. But then the next question is, well, what is their endurance like? Because many kids with mitochondrial issues, they can play their soccer game. They can go full force down the soccer field, but afterwards, they come home and they crash out on the couch and they can't do another thing all night. Yes. Right? Whereas most kids, they can play a full soccer game and they can come home and jump on the trampoline and they can have a play date. <laughs> yes, that's right. right. That's right. That, well, and the other clue too is muscle soreness. Yes. You know, that's a big red flag. That's <laughs> you know, right. There's a lactic acid buildup in a kid that, and it shouldn't be there. Yep. And also looking at, um, you know, what is their, what is their core strength and how do you assess that? Just look at your ch- how that child is sitting. Are they slumped over? hunched over so they can't engage their core and sit up with nice posture. Now, as kids get older, sometime in elementary school, you look at toddlers, they have perfect posture and babies, but then somewhere in middle school and elementary school, they start to slump forward. (laughs) But then you ask them, "Let's, let's sit up nice and straight. I put my back on their tummy or on their chest and their back and see if they can hold that posture. And some kids can't, right? You know, or if they're sitting in what's called a W position on the ground where, where they're sitting with their bottom on the floor, knees in front of them, and their feet are splayed out and looking yeah. like a W, right? Those are all potential signs of mitochondrial issues. It is not so, great. Oh yeah. So, you know, just look at, look at the history, look at your, um, look at clinical clues. You don't have to test everything, yeah. but, you know, let history and clinical signs be your guide for what you're going to address first and target. Right. And, and then, you know, with, um, with the next step, right, this is really balancing out that mind, body, spirit connection, which is so important we mentioned, but that also supports healing the cell danger response, because what, what are one, some of the ways that we can heal the cell danger response is really to help support the parasympathetic nervous system. 
And when you engage the parasympathetic nervous system, you support your mind-body-spirit connection and you support the overall healing and reduction of inflammation. So for kids with PANS, one of the arms of treatment that is, uh, that is recommended by the PANS consensus, um, PANS research consortium is cognitive behavioral therapy, which is absolutely key. Um, but also, you know, I encourage patients, I give children different apps to do meditation that are really kid friendly, just laying on the ground, you know, grounding every day, you know, a nice patch of grass, <laughs> you know, yeah. being outdoors. Yeah. Um, taking those big belly breaths, the number of kids who don't know how to belly breathe is astonishing. Um, so, you know, I'm just, I just have kids. It can be easier when they're laying down on their back, but putting their hand on their belly and ask them to take a really deep breath without moving their chest and without moving their shoulders. And some kids can do it easily, but many, many kids can't. But just having the focus and doing it with their parents every day for five minutes, we're going to practice our belly breathing. There's actually a really cute, um, for your younger kids, a cute um, uh, Sesame Street video with Elmo um, and a couple of, of, uh, of musicians um, with a song about how to belly breathe. So, so oh. I, can, I can give you that link too because yes. it is awesome. Um, yeah, I love it. So whatever we can do to really help kids stay connected with their bodies and their brains and also help the family with family therapy. Don't forget about the sibling. You know, when you're, when you're this, when you have a sick child, often the healthy child um, is, I don't want to say neglected, but, but, you know, they're, they're doing well and they're doing great and they're really helpful. And so we're not paying as much attention to them, but we really want to support them through, through the emotional trauma they're going through also, because for many of, many of them, they feel like they've lost their best friend, right? They've lost their brother or sister who's not themselves anymore. So really working with the family and working with the schools to help support that family unit and, and support them from becoming too isolated because parents you know, families, children who have pans and pandas are much more likely to have uh, unanticipated uh, departure from school and homeschooling um, because they just you know, don't have the school system that works for them. Um, and then the final step, and this is not so much functional medicine, but it's really integrative medicine. You know, when we, our bodies and our brains and, you know, our, and the way our bodies work are so complex and we're just at the tip of the iceberg of really understanding how our bodies work from an energetic standpoint, but really using your integrative tools that you have or that you have in your community. Um, I do acupuncture in the practice. I think that can be a great way to balance out um, the vagus nerve and, and really help with that mind-body connection. Um, I do use homeopathic medicines. Essential oils are really popular and when used appropriately, they can be, have very therapeutic benefits. Um, cranial osteopathy, chiropractic, I mean, whatever is, is, you know, you have in your toolkit yourself or have great practitioners who understand how you work and you can work as a team. I would encourage you to kind of step out even broader outside, you know, the functional medicine box. You know, I, I applaud everyone who's listening because you've already taken a huge giant step. Um, in learning how to help your patients, you know, and, and move outside the conventional box, but, you know, broaden even further and really look to see, are there other, you know, complementary and alternative modalities that could also help my patient? Uh, because there are so many other possibilities. So, unfortunately, we could just turn this into a, a day-long seminar. <laughs> but we've been, you've just been really just so generous with your teaching today. Um, 
I just feel like I've learned a lot. And I think one of the, one of the most lovely things that you're imparting here in your kind of calm words of wisdom is that we can do this. So even if you haven't addressed pans or pandas and you're feeling kind of anxious about it, you know, you've got it. There's yes. tools here that you're familiar with, you know, you can bring them together um, and, and we can do it and really help these kids. Well, Dr. Song, it was just lovely to get to spend this time with you today. Thank you <laughs> so much. Oh yeah. I, I don't, I lost track of time because it's so fun talking with you. I'm honored, so honored Aww. to be on your podcast and so honored to help you spread the word about pediatric functional medicine and getting more, um, practitioners on board because yeah, absolutely. it's so worth it. <laughs> so it is so worth it. And, and our conversation is going to continue. So I'm going to ping you. We're going to get some more, go to the show notes. There's a lot of stuff there from Dr. Song's practice that you can access, including the references that she's mentioned today. Um, we are probably, we're going to, if you're interested in it, we, I would love to do some sort of a blog with you and then, you know, bring you on for our clinical immersion folks for a teach-in. So we're just, I just want to continue this, um, our engagement with you because it's an incredibly important area for oh, us. I would, I would love to. I'm not going anywhere. You're not okay. going anywhere. Good. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks again. You're welcome. And that wraps up another amazing conversation with a great mind in functional medicine. I am so glad that you could join me. None of this would be possible through the years without our generous, wonderful sponsors, including Integrative Therapeutics, Metagenics, and Biotics. These are companies that I trust and I use with my patients every single day. Visit them at integrativepro.com, bioticsresearch.com, and metagenics.com. Please tell them that I sent you and thank them for making New Frontiers in Functional Medicine possible. And one more thing, leave a review and a thumbs up on iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever you're hearing my voice. Um, these kind of comments will promote New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, getting the word on functional medicine out there to the greater community. And for that, I thank you. Until next time.